Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, which is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, to find out about other podcasts, to, to read all of our uh, growing and in-depth uh, web-only material, which is all outside of paywall, um, including the Dispatch Fact Checks and other stuff. And uh, today's episode is brought to you by Bound by Oath. More about that in a little bit. So we're reverting back to, um, you know, it seems like every other show uh, since we've been on lockdown has either been a return of a fan favorite on this podcast, people like Jim Garrity and Lyman Stone, or someone that we've wanted to have on for a very long time. And finally, thanks to this uh, unusual situation that we're in, uh, we can now get. And so uh, today, that is Stephen Tellis, um, who is both a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. And he is also the co-author of a book called Never Trump, the Revolt of the Conservative Elites um, is by Robert P. Salden and, and Stephen. So, Stephen, uh, welcome to The Remnant. Happy to be here, Jonah. A long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, and we should just sort of get it out there in the open right now, is that I am one of the many people, um, somewhat problematically, but for the, sake, for the purposes of your book, to- totally understandable, uh, that you interviewed as a never Trumper, um, and uh, so just people should know that uh, it's not just a book I'm interested in; it's a book I'm I'm in, um, and whatever conflicts people see in that, they can um, uh, they can talk amongst themselves about. Um, so why don't you yeah, lay out? The, yeah, and throughout your the book, there's a little bit of a question about what constitutes the. Uh, subject of analysis, right? Because the term itself was controversial and there were people who were critics of um, Republican or conservative critics of Trump who didn't like the term or thought the term sort of died after the election. Um, But for our purposes, the book is really about sort of persistent critics of Trump, right? And, And in this world, Regardless of what people call themselves, you can observe behaviorally which of these camps people are in fairly distinctly. And in the book, we talk about people who are sort of somewhere in between. Um, but that was a pretty unstable place to be for the most part, right? Which is, you know, which is a function of our general polarization in politics today. Yeah, I mean, and just, you know, I mean, because I get this all the time. I mean, the, the pe- people who talk about Never Trump the most are the people who insist that Never Trump doesn't exist anymore, and that never really mattered, and but at the same time is stabbing us in the back and destroying the country. Um, it's a very strange sort of uh, cognitive dissonance on certain parts of the right. Is that um, you know I I, I I picture someone screaming incredibly loudly, "God damn it, you're irrelevant! I hate you!" as they follow you around a shopping mall or something. Um, but um, for my own purposes, I never really loved. I I, I use the term "never Trump" before the election. And it's some tweets and that kind of thing. I guess I probably used it in some columns. I'd have to go back and look. But the thing is, it basically emerged as a hashtag. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, different points of view captured in a essentially a, 
a bumper sticker phrase like that. And so there are different, there are many rooms in the mansion of never Trump. Let's put it that way. Um, but so what, what is your basic, what is your, so like listeners should know you, you're one of these guys that I go to about the role of parties. You know, this is a constant theme on this podcast about, you know, how the parties are weak, how uh, institutions are weak, and yet we live in this populist age where we're constantly being told they're too strong, they control too much of our lives and all that. And this kind of, your examination fits into a lot of that, right? I mean, why don't you explain? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of going on in the book, and we'll get into it. But one way to think about this is the party piece of this book um, essentially argues drawing on work by um, Milan Svolik and uh, Daniel Ziblatt um, that parties play a really important role in liberal democracy, right? They're an important mediating institution. Um, and at some point we'll go back. But when I was a boy um, growing up, being trained by conservatives, um, conservatives told me that mediating institutions were really important. Um, and, you know, so again, I was trained by Straussians, which some people say is like being raised by wolves. But um, <laughs> so I was trained by, by and they, uh, there was an enormous imp- in, emphasis in that particular kind of conservatism on the idea that pure liberal democracy was dangerous, right? The mo- liberal democracy needed all kinds of things to housebreak it um, for use, and political parties were one of those. Um, so my, one of my advisors in college was Jim Caesar, who wrote a great book called Presidential Selection. And one of the big themes of presidential selection was the danger of demagoguery, right? That that's, you know, again, if you think of the Straussian conservative analysis of democracy, um, that uh, the great risk of, of democracy was uh, precisely the rise of a demagogue who would inflame the, um, the attitudes and uh, tempers of the, of the people. And Caesar had taught me that the creators of the modern party system uh, had essentially created that in large part in the aftermath of Andrew Jackson, right? They'd seen kind of what a demagogue would look like, and they didn't right. want it. Um, and so parties were designed as a break on pure democracy. Um, and so that's an important background here, right, in that parties are supposed to be performing a kind of filtering or mediating function. Um, right. and it's something that Madison saw, too, right? He first hated parties, but then he came around on them because yeah. I often like to say Madison was um, a better philosopher than Hamilton, but a much worse rapper. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I don't mean to go, I mean, just putting it with Jackson, I understand like the era good feeling stuff and all that, but like there was, there was some recognition, even grudging from some of the founders themselves that parties maybe weren't as bad as they thought because so they built these coalitions that tempered players in the, on the, right. But they hadn't really institutionalized until the aftermath of, um, uh, of Jackson and so in again in the conservatism that i was trained about right that role for parties was very important and i was also uh you know raised on all this party literature that came out in the aftermath of the 72 reforms on the democratic side where there was all this argument that the attempt to sort of internally democratize parties was dangerous and parties needed to be um, uh, relatively independent. These are old names like Austin Ranney, and there was mm-hmm. lots of these people ended up um, at AI. They were probably floating around when you were, when you were just a boy chick at, a, at AI. Um, 
So that provides, I think, some of the background, right, is I, right. I come into this already with a more elitist theory of democracy, right, um, that democracy is important. I actually think that political mobilization is really important, but it has to happen through institutions and organizations. Um, and so what we see, one way to think about what happened in 2016 was it was a collapse of those mediating institutions, right? The parties, um, uh, the party and the Republican side couldn't perform this function of keeping out a one, right? A, uh, a figure who was entirely inconsistent or largely inconsistent with their existing uh, traditions and processes. And more importantly, one who had these, again, I, I, you know, many of your listeners may not like this, but I think classically demagogic, kind of um, qualities to them, right? And again, I think you can see, by contrast, it's sort of interesting how at least this truncated Democratic race suggests that the Democratic Party has more of those sort of functioning, mediating um, uh, sort of roles still present, right? It turns out that lots of people did actually, um, uh, you know, congeal around trying to prevent somebody who thought they saw it as a, a dangerous sort of interloper in the form of Sanders, right? And so in other countries, um, these kinds of things are performed, this function is performed formally. So I think the comparison to Germany is interesting, right? Germany can just make certain kinds of political activity illegal, right? That's the thing that sort of, you know, um, that we see in European systems. In the United States, that has to happen informally through things like parties, right? And so one way to think about what happened in 2016 was it was a collapse of those mediating structures and what the people who became never Trumpers thought they were doing was performing that mediating function. They thought that that was their job, right? So we have a line in the book where we say that they opposed Trump so ferociously because they thought they were authorized to do so by their role in the party and critically by, from our account, by their professional vocation, right? Um, that's mm -hmm. from the, the intro. And so if you want to know what, you know, I mean, obviously never Trump was a hashtag and you can think of it as a social media thing, but I think the best way to think of these never Trumpers is they thought they were doing their job, right? They thought they actually right. had, you know, a, again, the informal, not like somebody hired them and signed a contract saying your job is to stop demagoguery. Right. But they had intuited that that was, that was their job within the American party system. Right. So, I mean, actually, I, I, I took notes. Uh, one of the, you, you write at one point um, in the introduction, what's so concerned many of the actors around Never Trump is that Trump made it quite clear that he was not willing to recognize the democratic legitimacy of the opposition, most obviously by calling for his opponents to be locked up or sent home, suggesting that he might not accept the 2016 election result if he lost and asking foreign leaders to dig up dirt on a domestic political rival. Never Trumpers understood this. Never Trumpers understood this way. We're engaging in the kind of system maintenance activity that a healthy liberal democracy requires, right? I mean, we and I, I, it was an interesting point. You know, earlier in that on that page, you're citing um, uh, Steve Levitsky in the book that um, uh, and Ziblatt were working on about how part hardcore partisans are actually willing to sacrifice a lot of democratic norms in favor of their their agenda, their partisan agenda, their ideological agenda. And moderates tend not to be because they care less about the ideological agenda and more about um, 
you know, moderation, right, in the rule of law and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was an interesting way of thinking about it in that, I mean, obviously I've written on a lot of this stuff, but, you know, I've never considered myself a moderate. Very few people consider me a moderate, <laughs> or at least used to. I mean, one of the, I mean, we can talk about this in a little bit. One of the interesting things about this moment with, you know, what we're doing at the dispatch, what you guys are doing at Niskanen is that, and I know you guys have your own ideological frequencies, but um, there's this strange moment going on where to be basically sort of classically liberal in the, you know, in the way conservatives like to call themselves classically liberal kind of makes you a centrist now in a way that we've never seen before. Um, but it, it's an interesting way of thinking about how some of the people on the right who became anti-Trump or never Trump or whatever you want to call them, um, we were forced to choose between a, you know, a, a transactional ideological agenda and the health of the system overall. And um, it's, it's a way for me, at least for some people who went, who, who I think chose poorly to defend them a little bit, because I want to, I'm, I'm really tired of losing so many friends um, by saying that they just thought the system was healthy enough to withstand this guy in ways that some of us didn't. Right. So, um, anyway, go on. Yeah, so let's go back. So the um, the argument that you were putting there is actually from um, Yale political scientist Milan Svolik. So mm -hmm. he's done some really amazing um, experiments, not just in the United States, but in Turkey and Venezuela. Um, and essentially what he does is he tries to get at this trade-off that you were mentioning between democratic or institutional norms and policy preferences, right? So you can imagine, right, one of the devices that political scientists usually use is to imagine the um, ideological space as a single dimension from zero to 100, right, where zero is the most conservative and 100 is the most liberal, right? And that, um, uh, so, and the idea here, right, is that if you have relatively low levels of polarization, right? Imagine that everybody's between 40 and 60, right? Um, if your, your party nominates somebody who is dangerous to liberal democratic um, norms, right? Uh, the only way to stop them, right, really is to support the other party, right? That's, mm -hmm. uh, that's what you're stuck with, right? Um, and, but you're only losing 20 points of ideological value there. Right now, imagine your party, your party system switches to 80, 20, right? Where the left is at 20 and the right is at 80 right now to oppose your own party. You have to give up 60 points of ideological value, right? That's a really big um, difference. Right. And mm -hmm. so what, that's one way to think about how polarization fits into all of what was going on in 2016 is that that level of political polarization means that people think that they're just giving up a lot more than they would have in the past, right? Um, so that's one dimension. Now, that, that assumes that, in fact, all these ideological positions are purely objective. I also think there's a story here about the way that, um, that organized, you know, people whose business is polarization, right? And you, you know some of these people, right? Um, uh, they're... You know, what, what, you know, even if it's like actually 80-20, right, if we say that's the actual distribution, right, there are people whose job is to convince people that the difference is 95-5, right? Um, that literally is what pays their mortgage, right, is convincing people they're 95-5, right? If you think Sometimes they mortgage on their beach house, yes. not just well, so, mortgage. Yeah. yeah, so, <laughs> and, you know, we have a discussion in the book of the Flight 93 
article, which I think is a classic example of this, right? Part if you think of what was what was what was he doing in that Flight 93 article, he was trying to convince people that it was literally 95.5 in the sense that right. it was it was literally survival that was on the ballot in 2016. Yeah, not even 95.5, it was 100-0, right? It was, it was right. like, it was not, the metaphor is an existential thing. It's death or Trump, you know? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that, that, that reminds me of, uh, uh, of that, uh, that old riff, the one, cake or death. Um, cake or death. <laughs> cake, you know, because cake or death, that's a pretty easy question. Everyone, anyone can answer that. Cake or death? Uh, cake, please. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so I think that's part of how... Polarization is part of this general story, right? Both real polarization, the fact that the parties genuinely do have policy positions that are, are much further from each other than they used to be, right? And perceived polarization, right? Um, which is kind of a socially constructed phenomenon, right? Um, and, you know, and again, that's where there's a business model of, uh, of that, right? And so thinking about that, right, never Trumpers, what's interesting for me, from my point of view as a political scientist and not just a person who's, you know, engaged in with this stuff, right, is that um, a number of those people who were never Trumpers were genuinely giving up a lot of ideological points, right? And again, and that's mm-hmm. why in, in, in my book, right, you're more interesting than somebody like Max Boot. Right. Um, you know, that is, you know, Max Boot, by the time this happened, right, um, you know, was not giving up a lot of points. And he sort of ended up in an ideological equilibrium where his underlying, you know, where he was in that distribution sort of meshed with where he was institutionally. Right. So that's one way yeah. to solve. That's one way to solve the problem. Right. Um, Jen Rubin. Right. I think one thing is a lot of her sort of ideological positions. Right. That the the experience of opposing Trump sort of broke the spell of conservatism for her. Right. So Mm -hmm. she reconciles this thing by moving along that ideological spectrum. But anyways, I I think that um, Solik article or our pieces are really useful as a general frame. And they're also useful, I think, as you were suggesting for having some sympathy with the people who didn't go and didn't stay never Trump, um, Mm -hmm. which is hard, right? That's part of polarization, right? Um, Is that, we tend to want to imagine the people on the other side as moral monsters, right? But, um, you know, and again, I'm not a conservative and I'm not a Republican, so this is like some other dude's problem in some way, right? Um, but it did, I think, help me become sympathetic to people like, you know, Henry Olson, who I think is a very, very smart guy and I think is yes, a fundamentally a moral, moral guy, right, who made some different calculations about this. Um, but again, what's characteristic about the never Trumpers is they made a particular calculation about that trade-off and that, and thinking in terms of that trade-off, I think is actually analytically really useful. Yeah, no, um, I, I found it helpful. And, um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's very tempting for I me mean, you're, you're outside the fishbowl, you know? Um, and you know, you're, you're, you're doing, I have to say a much better, uh, you know, I, I've been complaining. It's become a minor meme on the right for the last couple decades of uh, what I once called gorillas in the mist conservatism, where the New York Times sends out like a Diane Fossey type to go cover conservatives. And there's this kind of wide eyed shock that, oh my gosh, look at them. They're in the mist. The conservatives, 
they love their children too. <laughs> they they eat proteins and you know they, they describe them as sort of like visitors from Mars kind of thing. And there's a whole genre, you know, of young reporters uh, going in mufti undercover sort of um, on National Review cruises or whatnot to describe conservatives. And a lot of it, I have to say, is garbage. Um, but you actually do a, a very admirable, intellectually honest effort of actually understanding the perspective where people you disagree with are actually coming from rather than the way you want a character, you know, not, not you, but the way a lot of people yeah. who are doing that kind of project. I mean, one of my great frustrations, one of the reasons why we started this batch, a minor reason, but it was part of the grand picture is that there are a lot of people out there who claim to be cover, who claim to be journalists covering the right or conservatives. And then you look at what they're writing about and they're covering almost exclusively a bunch of alt-right Peckerwoods, Klansmen, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And they don't seem, sometimes they honestly don't seem to understand that someone like me who could have worked at National Review for 20 plus years, you know, I don't hang out with a lot of Klansmen, you know, and there are people like you bump into who have really bad views on race. They tend to get fired um, when they express them. Um, but, you know, understanding, having a little sort of uh, imaginative imaginative sympathy um for the people you're covering what it, you know it's you're probably some descendant of the german historicist school but uh you know that's where the word empathy originally comes from in english it gets it's this translation of that german word that means sort of embedding yourself within like it's nice that you know a lot of the shibboleths and it comes clear it comes across in the book that you understand where these people are <laughs> actually coming from not where you just sort of want them to come from um, right and anyway, it's a ramble but Right. Again, I think the out. important point there is that um, I was, you know, I was trained by conservatives, right, um, at University of Virginia, Martha Durthick, Jim Caesar, Steve Rhodes, right, the latter two were both, you know, were both Straussians, right, Steve Rhodes is trained by Alan Bloom, um, and uh, Jim Caesar is trained by Harvey Mansfield, uh, and so, you know, these aren't just people who I, you know, who I, I one day decided I wanted to learn about and I'm learning about like an anthropologist, right? In some sense, right. I've, you know, and I think it's important to say that I learned a lot from them, right? One of the reasons Jim I- Jim Caesar's I a brilliant them, guy. I mean- Yeah, no, I mean, the, they had a lot to learn. And, you know, there is actually a small group of these um, political scientists who I think of as, as you know, as Democrats um, who were trained by Straussians. Bill Galston is, uh, is one of mm -hmm. them. He went to Chicago. Uh, Sid Milkus, who's at Virginia, is another, uh, is another one, right? There's a bunch of, a, a bunch of us who've tried to sort of integrate what we learned from Straussians with uh, a little bit more of a kind of uh, liberal democratic um, uh, belief. But to go back to your point, one of the things that I did try to sort out in this book, along with, uh, with my co-author, Rob Saldine, is um, that relationship between what you might think of as the fever swamps of conservatism and what you would I'd probably think of as the respectable conservatism, right? Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, a, a lot of new research coming out in, uh, in history and political science. I'm on the dissertation committee of a guy who's doing some work on this that does show, you know, it's a complicated relationship, right? Um, and in the book, some people use metaphors like 
well, there was this monster we had in the basement, right? And we all knew it was in the basement. <laughs> and sometimes around elections, like we'd let it out, right? And sick it on the opponent, right? But we thought that we had the key to the basement, right? We controlled the monster, right? Um, and the thing that happens, right? And so that's why a lot of the story of the history of conservatism, right? Like the way conservatives tell that story is a story of recurrent purges, right? In, in fact, if you were telling the story of National Review, you could really tell the whole story of National Review as a story of recurrent purges, right? Mm -hmm. Of the John Birch Society, of John Dar you know, Derbyshire, right? All these, you know. Now, again, there's an interesting question about why so many of these guys keep popping up that then need to be purged, right? That's a question I think conservatives should have been asking themselves probably a little bit more in the first place, um, that there was some endogenous generation of purgeable actors, right, uh, in that movement. And I think one thing that you're seeing in a lot of the scholarship that's just starting to come out is that there was more interaction between what you might think of as the fever swamps and the respectable conservatives than people necessarily wanted to see, right? And to the degree to which conservatives were telling their own story, it was a story of the, the dominance of the respectable conservatives, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think one thing, so I have a, a guy who's writing a dissertation now on the history of originalism um, at University of Chicago. And one thing you see is, right, conservatives often tell the story of originalism as if it like, began all with all with Robert Bork, right? He writes an article in 1971 and he brings the tablets out. He's like Moses, right? Um, uh, but one thing you see is actually in lots of those areas that we might retrospectively want to call the fever swamps, there was already all of this language of originalism, right? In some sense that, uh, that Bork was drawing on lots of things that were out there in the margins, and then he was, he was making them respectable, right? And so I think there was probably a lot more of that circulation going on before, but it's certainly the case that one thing that's going on in 2016 is the ability of gatekeepers to perform that respectability politics function on the right collapses, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, in some sense, one of the more, and we get a lot of that in the public intellectuals, Mm -hmm. chapter, right? Because certainly, you know, you were at National Review during all this, and National Review played this really important role in, um, you know, in establishing what was respectable conservatives and in purging. And part of that is just technologically, right? Technologically, the ability to perform those functions, right? That's one thing that, that media does is it, um, it destroys mediation, Right. That's what all of the structure of social media or technology, it's all designed. Right. That's what people make money on Silicon Valley doing is destroying mediation. Um, but that's the case where, again, technology and the institutionalization of liberal democracy are really hard to reconcile because liberal democracy to work needs institutions, professions, mediation, needs all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one story of what's going on the never trump is the people who tried to perform that mediation and then found right under the stress of donald trump that their ability to do so had um uh had had dissipated right i mean we talked about this about how you know you know all praise and honor to william f buckley but you know part of his power at the time other than his eloquence and his brilliance and all of that stuff was simply the fact that he was kind of the only game in town. He was a validator uh, 
if you were too much of a crackpot to be allowed on, you know, in the pages of National Review or on Firing Line, um, it wasn't like you had a lot of other avenues to go through, right? I mean, he National Review performed this gatekeeper function in part because the walls were so high and we were one of the only gates to respectable conservatism. And um, what the internet did, and I sort of, I was there for it because, you know, I started National Review Online, is the walls around the gates kept coming down, you know? And so, like, there's just these huge holes in the walls. And you quote uh, my friend Rich Lowry, which I think was a pretty good summation. Uh, Rich says, the snapshot way to put it is, uh, he's talking about Breitbart. He says, the snapshot way to put it is Breitbart runs a website for their comment section. That's the sensibility they're going for. We run a web website that wants to correct our comment section or show them where they're wrong. And I still think that's true of National Review. You know, I, I'm not a disparager of National Review in any sense of the word. Um, but the overall media climate on the right has just moved. And you quote me about this, about talk radio. I mean, the vast... Oh, nearly all of talk radio, uh, more than any other segment on the right, is about fan service. Uh, you know, my friend Hugh Hewitt, he tries really hard to sort of, you know, nudge the 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 the, the listeners in a certain direction from time to time. But uh, even those efforts are are not exactly like uh, direct, you know, uh, confrontation of Donald Trump in any way. Um, and the rest of them, as far as I can tell. You know, uh, Mike Medved lost his his gig. Lots of people lost their positions because um, they see their job as articulating what the audience wants to hear. And um, and I think you know, look, I'm a Fox News contributor. This is a fraught subject for me to talk about. But on the opinion side, uh, there are only two audiences that they seem to be particularly concerned about. One is what the audi the audience that want that shows up every night and wants to hear what they want to hear. And the other one is the audience of one that is Donald Trump. Um, and there's a real symbiotic positive feedback loop there, obviously. Um, and National Review is this model that says, you know, uh, sometimes we have to tell our biggest fans that they're wrong. And that in this day and age is a very hard thing to do as a business model. Yeah, I mean, so I do think I would like to complicate a little bit of that history of National sure. Review. Um I mean, one of the things that came, comes out of this um, dissertation, dissertation student um, I'm talking to, right, is, you know, how important Jim Kilpatrick was at National mm -hmm. Review, um, you know, who was just a straight out racist segregationist, um, massive, you know, I mean, uh, massive resistance, right, all of it, right? And Kim and, you know, and, you know, Buckley loved Kilpatrick, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely loved him, right? Um, and continued publishing him in and supporting him all the way through the 60s and 70s, right? Um, and he was not the only one. You look, you go back and, you know, Ernest Vandenhag was a big, you know, you, these are names that, that, uh, that you, you'll know Jonah, right? But, mm -hmm. boy, oh, yeah, no, no. but boy, was he a creep. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. He was a weird dude. He was part of the old cape-wearing cohort of Yeah, but I mean, cape, like, Cape, like South African Cape, like he was, actually, you know, he was actually going out there, actually, you know, affirmatively defending the goodness of um, of apartheid, right? And that, you know, that was right there in the pages of National Review, right? It wasn't any secret. Um, 
And so, you know, and so a lot of those things that actually reemerge in the alt-right, right, were there in National Review, right? At some point, National Review then purges them, right? Mm -hmm. But um, they provided sucker for them originally and then and then purge them, right? And I think there, there, there's some of that. Oh no, I agree with that entirely. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to pardon the phrase "whitewash National Review's history." Um, I've, I said this for years while at National Review. This is not some new thing. That National Review was wrong about the civil rights stuff. I mean, it was just flatly wrong. And I don't know anybody currently at National Review who disagrees with that. Um, and. I think it's, and so was the conservative movement generally was wrong. I mean, obviously you can go back and you can cherry pick or you can do this sort of phantasmagorical stuff that Dinesh does. Um, but the reality is, is that you just have to admit that at a 30,000 foot level, the conservative movement was wrong about issues of race and civil rights. And then you can talk about, you know, the caveats and the people who wrote dissenting views and, um, you know, you know, the, the, the sort of Jaffa strain of this and, you know, and all these kinds right. of things that that um, contradict the easy narrative. But if you're not willing to sort of just admit, you know, we I, mean, I, I don't know how much blame would I say we, but I mean, conceptual we um, screwed up and got it wrong. And yeah. um, and and but so you're right that there was a bad lag time on a lot of those kinds of issue, issues, particularly with Bill. And, and the magazine, um, which I think he's actually, he discussed quite a bit later in life, but um, but that also gets, you know, that part of the, I this is a huge tangent, but it, it's yeah. part of my problem with- This program is basically about tangents, right? It is, it is. It, we shouldn't call it the remnant, we should call it the tangent. But um, the, so one of my enduring complaints about the way the sort of uh, mostly liberal consensus historian and political historians and, and political scientists and uh, and and the people co controlling the commanding heights of the culture and the narrative of America is that progressivism and liberalism are never wrong, right? When you can ascribe evil or bad things to uh, the right, that's ideal. And you get to point out, you know, whatever it's, you know, Ernest Van de Hag or, you know, whatever, um, uh, or McCarthyism. And you can say, see, this shows how bad the right is or how bad conservatives right. are. And then if you can't squarely lay the blame on conservatives or the right, the tendency is to lay the blame on America itself, right? The, the sort of the 1619... Um, writ large, where it's the um, it's the inherent racism of America, it's the inherent racism of, uh, you know, that is baked into our white supremacy, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying there's no argument for some of that stuff. I'm just saying that, that the problem is, is that you never get, um, the second you can start openly talking about how terrible some progressives were, is when you can start describing them as right-wingers. And um, so if you go look at right. the work like that Leonard has done on uh, progressives and eugenics, um, uh, you know, it's it's it, it there is this blamelessness for progressivism that kind of bothers me. And so the only reason I bring this up is that when you start talking about the, the dirty laundry in National Review's history, which I think is dirty and it is there to be sure, 
Um, some of that stuff was reflective of where America was on race at the time. You know, it wasn't simply that there was this, um, you know, that, you know, if you go back, take McCarthyism, right? I mean, the number of, of really McCarthyite um, figures in American politics who were Democrats is really quite large and impressive, you know, including the guy yeah. they named the airport after in Vegas. All I'm saying is that it's a complicated patchwork. And to say that it's that we can just sort of scoop all of the badness into the history of the conservative movement without looking at the, looking at the broader context or where, you know, where white America or where America itself was on some of these issues, it's, it's, it becomes easier to cherry pick out these things about National Review's history and say, look how horrible this is, when in reality, yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on and in the Democratic I mean, Party and all the rest. Yeah, oh yeah. So, well, certainly, I mean, one thing, there is this complication of, you know, of thinking about the two parties as continuous, right? When, uh, what right. I'm interested in is liberal and conservatism, right? But that's the whole thing that's happening in the 50s and 60s is where people are is, are shifting around. Somebody like Jim Kilpatrick, who was clearly a Democrat, right, up through the 40s and 50s, becomes, you know, becomes a Republican because the Republican Party is itself changing around in its own strategy. But that's not really, my point isn't really to try to say, um, here that, of course, you know, National Review had lots of racists in it, right? For the purpose of the book, right? I mean, that's a perfectly good art, you know, thing. And it's really important, I think, for the stories people to tell to avoid entirely legitimating hate geographical stories, which is, sure. you know, that's the tendency of what you might call movement history, right? Movements always want to tell histories of themselves that are, you know, that are great, that, that have a you know, heroic role for themselves, right? And lots of the, the writing. So I'm teaching this class on the development of the American conservative movement this semester. And we started out reading Knock, which is in some ways is a very good book, right? Mm -hmm. But it is, a, it, is a, it is movement history, right? It's designed to demonstrate... Wait, reading Knock? Uh, uh, Nash. Knock, uh, Nash. Nash, yeah. Yeah, yeah Nash's yeah. Uh, book on the conservative intellectual movement. And, you know, that's a book that's, that is designed to give a kind of heroic role to this movement. And the interesting thing, when you go back and read Nash is there's lots of the, like, breadcrumbs for you to pick up if you wanted to in that book about mm -hmm. the relationship of this intellectual movement to darker currents, right? But he doesn't integrate it at all into his narrative, right? And that's true, again, I think you're right, that the, the left tends to tell a similar a geographical legitimating story. But for the purposes of the book, the important point is that the things that become part of Trumpism, right, um, were both sort of born and then sent out into the wilderness, right, by conservatives themselves, right? They weren't an entirely alien force. Now, part of that, I think, explains why certain kind of never-Trumpers reacted so strongly to Trump. Right. Because what they saw, they, they were like, oh, my God, all these people we thought we sent, you know, out to the wilderness, you know, and we had, you know, we had disposed of them. Somehow they're back and they're all on board with Trump. And that has to be a signal of something not very good. Right. And they, mm -hmm. that's one thing that we caught on very much. And that's why in some, you know, I think, you know, you certainly because you had spent so much of your time um, having fights with, uh, you know, with, you um, uh, with a lot of those alt-righty type people, right, already, right? You had already been having that fight, right. right? In some sense, you had already been having the fight we describe in the book in a kind of phony war version before 2016. 
Um, right. or, I knew what VDare was long before the New York Times discovered it. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And so I think that plays or that explains again the big subject of the book is why did this particular set of people react in in what's a really unprecedented way, right? That is opposing a nominee of your own party is a huge thing to do, especially under the conditions of polarization we have, right? And so the question is, what explains why this set of people, as compared to all the people who eventually got on Trump, reacted in some sense stuck with it as long as they did? And you really need to understand 2015 and 2016 in the history of that relationship between what you might call respectable and non-respectable conservatives, right? It, it, that whole background uh, shapes how everybody sees what they're seeing, right? Um, and why certain kind of people think that the reactions of people like never Trumpers are so, you know, over overboard, right? Which again, I think is what, that's one of the, the, the interesting things, right? How do people see the exact same thing? And some people see emergency and danger and some people see, eh, right? And mm -hmm. there's, you know, I think what we're just talking about plays an important role in that, right? That sort of history of the relation between respectable and alt-right conservatism. Um, I do think there's a religious component, right? We have a discussion of um, the role of Judaism, right? There's lots of non-Jewish never-Trumpers, but there's lots of Jewish never-Trumpers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in interviewing people, right, that religious or at least cultural component plays a really big role, right? Because, um, you know, one way to think about this is, you know, I, as, a, as a historian of conservatism, right, you know, Frank Knight's risk, uncertainty, and profit, right? And one way to think about this situation is this is a situation of profound uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. 2016 is not something that looks like anything else people know, right? Um, and that's, you know, mo and that's what Knight described as a situation of risk, right? A risk situation of risk is something where you've got pretty standard parameters and you can estimate what the risk of one thing or another and you can, you know, you can do rational action within those frameworks, right? But uncertainty is when you're in you know, situations in which it's not possible to calculate uh, risk, right? And that's what, in some sense, everybody was in. Trump was so far off of the standard, right, that people had to revert to lots of other historical analogizing and other kinds of things in order to make sense of what kind of object was this in the world to make, you know, to, to reason about. Um, and that's where I think religion plays an important role. It's not accident. It's not just Jews. But Mormons, right, who play an important role in Never Trump. Um, and in the book, I spent, a, I spent an inordinate amount of time and only a little bit of it got in the book about Mormons. Um, but, you know, what Mormons have in their history is an experience of communal destruction, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is, it, it's part of their ritualized history, right? They send their, their kids out to, like, Indiana to show where they were slaughtered. And they have stories about the extinction orders of Mormons, right? So that, that's part of their, you know, what you might call ritualized or sacred history, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's important because it really means that they have a sense that things can go really, really far down, right? Um, and obviously Jews, right, you don't have to have a lot of history of the Holocaust to know how available that is. And when I did some of the interviews, especially with Mona Charon, right, this came up really clearly, how available that was, or Brett Stevens, right? It was, it was totally psychologically available, that analogy. And I remember, the, I think it was the same day I interviewed Brett Stevens, I also interviewed Rich Lowry, 
right? And I remember going out of the interview with Rich after having been with Brett, right? So Brett went right to the Holocaust, right? He said, that's what this all reminds me of, right? Or this reminds me of Nazi. Now, again, you can say, well, that's too much or that's over, over the top. But part of the point about uncertainty is it's hard to tell anybody that something is or isn't over the top because you right. don't know what situation you're in. But I remember going from that with Brett to Rich. And one of the things we did in the interview with Rich is I kept trying to get him to go there. Mm-hmm. Right. And he just wouldn't go there. Right. Um, now, one way to put this is that's just like a Goyesha thing. Right. I mean, Rich, <laughs> you know, Rich is a particular kind of, you know, Christian American, right, who just, you know, I think intuitively in his bones assumes that things are sort of going to be okay, right? Yeah, well, I mean, he just wrote a book about nationalism being kind of awesome, you know, I mean, like, and and his version of nationalism, I mean, there's an ongoing argument I have with him, is a a very American exceptional, non-Europe, blood and soil nationalism, and that's a reflection of that same thing that you're talking about, this inerrant confidence that this is a good country, right? Right. Then again, the, the, the term I think we use in the book is what I would call sort of catastrophic imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, and I, and I have this on both sides of my family. So I just say one side of my family is Jewish, one side of my family are Southern Baptists from South Carolina, right? Um, so culturally, I can sort of see both things, right? Um, and, you know, I, I do think that was the thing I saw in, in Rich's, you know, interview was a complete lack of catastrophic imagination, right? He just couldn't imagine things going, you know, there, you know, you couldn't get him into a plot against America kind of mindset, mm-hmm. right? Um, whereas a lot of the never Trumpers, right, you really, you really could, right? There's a, you know, there's a great quote from Brett Stevens, where he said, you know, it reminds you of something your grandma told you. Right. Well, you, you either that's either psychologically available and resonant or it's not. Right. 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 Um, and even people who had similar ideological preferences. Right. The ideology doesn't get you to an explanation, but some of that sort of catastrophic imagination sort of does. And I look, I mean, I, I got to be I, mean, I think you quote me about this in the book, but um, I did not think that. You know, my standard joke is Donald Trump's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. But, you know, um, right. the uh, my view is at the time um, was even though I didn't think he was going to be Hitler or any of that kind of stuff, um, the way in which you watched people one by one, you know, that invasion of the body snatchers thing that I wrote, which became a thing. Um, you watch people one by one just flip a mental switch and implicitly repudiate everything that you had a conversation with them about or everything that they had publicly said. Um, uh, sometimes it felt like almost overnight. And that feeling I got, I remember going to the 2016 Republican convention and again, I don't think we're in Weimar, Germany then. I don't think we're in there now. But there was this thing. If you read you know, a lot of the histories about, about Weimar, Germany in the early 30s, when it's not clear how politics are going to go. And you have to have these testing conversations to find out where the person you're talking to comes down on the pressing issues of the day. And so... Um, like, I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes is how, um, the head of Krupp, Alfred Krupp's or Krupp, whatever, uh, 
he had standing orders to his chauffeur that if he came out of a meeting with his gloves in his right hand, the chauffeur should give him the old Junker Bavarian salute. And if he came out with his gloves <laughs> in his left hand, you got the Nazi salute. And, you know, you'd have to, at the convention, you'd have to test things out and say, hey, you know, interesting times, huh? To see <laughs> where they would go so you could figure out how you could talk, on, how honestly you could talk about things. That, again, not turning into Nazi Germany, but that feeling was so new to me. Um, that feeling of, holy crap, I can't actually rely on these people to be the people that I thought they were, or that they told me they were, was existentially kind of weird. And when you combine, and we talk, you can talk about this in the book, I do think that, that combined with the level of anti-Semitic stuff or bigoted stuff that those of us who remain critical of Trump too long received, um... And combine that with the fact that there are a lot of people, respectable people on the right saying the alt-right needs to be part of our coalition, just gave you this sense of, holy crap, I can't, you know, I think as David says in your book, you know, there are only so many times you can see someone photoshopping a picture of your daughter in a gas station, I mean, in a gas chamber, uh, before you decide, okay, these people are my enemy. And the inability of so many people on the right to not just condemn, but care that this was going on to people like me and Shapiro and David French. Um, and that if you complained about it too much, they were like, why are you making such a big deal about, you know, pictures of you, you in a gas chamber? You know, <laughs> yeah. why are you making such Get a big deal? It, about? Man. Yeah, I mean, like, why are you such a, you know, uh, stick in the mud about this stuff? Um, that, so the uncertainty point, you know, the night, Frank Knight, uncertainty point you're making is a good one is like, you're you just didn't know where things were going to go. And it was very easy to imagine them that this, that we were on an incline and that it wasn't going to find equilibrium anytime soon. Um, but I want to, I want to press you about one thing in a second about the role of politicians and all of, and all of this. But uh, before we go any further, I, I really do got to talk very quickly about uh, bound by oath. Okay. So um, uh, for those of you who remember my, uh, podcast with uh, Senator Soshana Weissman from R Street. Um, I, and various other times on, on this podcast, I am a big fan of the Institute for Justice. Um, I think their model as sort of a um, hybrid between think tank and public interest law firm is um, really admirable, and they do incredibly important work highlighting all sorts of things that um, are holding people back from getting up on that rung, um, that first rung of the ladder um, towards uh, the middle class or earn success or however you want to put it. Um, and they have a fantastic podcast that is intended for both serious legal nerds, but also people who are just interested in these kinds of issues. And it's called Bound by Oath. It's a deep dive into the history of the 14th Amendment that is accessible and enjoyable to non-lawyers, but it's also chock full of interesting tidbits lawyers will not have learned in their con law classes. The need for the 14th Amendment and the ratification of the 14th Amendment are fascinating stories that people don't know a lot about. It's true. So is the story of the Supreme Court initially, and to some degree still, rejecting important liberty-protecting provisions of the 14th Amendment. 
So the podcast is a production of the Institute for Justice and many, but by no means all of the stories they tell are of IJ clients fighting for the right to earn a living, for their property rights, and other essential American liberties. Bound by Oath just wrapped up its first full season. Um, you should start it from the beginning because that's where the story begins. Um, it's available on all your obvious podcast platforms. And you can also just search for Bound by Oath. And we'll have their uh, webpage up in the show notes as well. We thank Bound by Oath uh, for the work that they're doing and for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So in the in the book, you write, um, most of the politicians who once denounced Trump turned out to be, at least in the minds of never-Trumpers, summer soldiers and sunshine patriots. Elected officials like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, who had once denounced him as mentally unbalanced, ideologically unhygienic and fundamentally authoritarian, eventually came to bend the knee. Given the intense negative partisanship of our times and the fear among members of Congress that crossing Trump will lead to a humiliating Twitter attack and a primary challenge, this is not much of a surprise. Yet the white-hot core of the resistance to Trump was never with elected officials, but among the professionals, public intellectuals, political operatives, and once-in-future political appointees that all modern parties depend on to run the huge undertakings of modern campaigns and governance. And so I want you to expand on this a little bit. On the one hand, um, I completely get your point, and I think you're analytically correct or observationally correct. Um, and this sort of ties into this notion of the, the, the sort of the party as being more than simply the RNC or the, or the DNC, but this network of validators and gatekeepers and elites who control all sorts of things. Um, but I just want to, you know, to note at the time, it was not obvious that all of these politicians would cave when you actually had conversations with them at the time, they were encouraging me and people like me to do what we were doing. Um, and you sort of, at, at the end of the book, you talk about how returning to the old style party is going to be impossible or very unlikely. Um, I largely agree with you on that, but it's worth pointing out that that is still the case with these politicians. I love listening to Trump in these press conferences saying, I wish, you know, these politicians would, you could hear what these politicians are saying to me when uh, the cameras aren't there in terms of like the COVID response stuff. And I've been saying for a year now, I wish people, I wish Trump's biggest supporters could hear what politicians are saying to me about Trump. And a lot of the, the, I mean, I, I don't think it covers them and colors them in glory or makes them profiles in courage. But the number of them who basically see Trump as bad weather that they can ride out is kind of fascinating. And so I'm kind of curious what you think of a post-Trump, whether it's in 2021 or 2025, um, what a post-Trump GOP looks like. Do you think that there's a – what do you think about the prospects of people trying to recover at least some of the old playbook? Yeah, so – so there were about fourteen questions embedded in that. So I know there were, it. but you know, I, I'm, I'm letting you, I'm letting you run free. But I just, I want to get these things in there. So yeah, I'll try and unwind this. So one, I do think it's important to talk about what, how I think about what a party is, because I think there's a particular theory of party that's embedded in the book, right? 
And so, as you were saying, right, the, a party isn't just like the RNC. It's not just the elected officials. And there's a whole school in political science that tries to, you know, it's famously is a great book by John Aldrich called Why Parties that says parties are fundamentally coalitions of office seekers, right? We should right. think about parties as just coalitions of office seekers where they get together to engage in, you know, to c construct systems of collective action to serve their ends, right? And I think that's wrong, right? Um, that, uh, and part of it, the reason it's wrong is that um, political parties have to do an enormous amount of stuff nowadays, right? Um, you know, running a modern campaign requires the services of professionals, right? Running the modern administrative state, I did that just to trigger you, um, uh, Jonah, right? Uh, you know, even if you don't like the administrative state, you have to run it, or at least, you know, Trump maybe is testing the limits of that. Um, yeah. I like administration. I just, you yeah. know, administrative uh, state is a little different, but anyway. Right. So, you know, you know, and so all of those things mean that, you know, and also, you know, the ideas that political parties have have to be generated by a specialist cadre of, uh, of people, right, including some in universities, some in magazines, all that kind of stuff. All of those you can think of as service providers. And in the book, we describe them as having a kind of professional jurisdiction, right, um, that they've generated, right, because there are certain professional services that have to be done uh, for a political party. And so as we look at it, right, it's really that group that's the core of Never Trump, right? They were the ones who were the most intense. They were the ones who least sort of, um, you know, switched up. I think they were the ones who were the least um, uh, just sort of opportunistic. Although in the book, right, you do see people who are opportunistic, right? And, and I don't want to name names. You can go and read the book and see the people who basically admit to being opportunistic. And I do think going back to the 90 and uncertainty point, you know, a lot of people had resolved that nighty and uncertainty by convincing themselves that Trump was going to lose, mm -hmm. right? And it is important to recognize, I think that's a lot of the politician class, right, is that there's a certain set of never-Trumpers who imagined that they were going to be the clean team, right? That what was going to happen was Trump was going to get creamed, right? It was going to be embarrassing, right? That whole sort of thing that was around Trump would be proven to be, you know, to be wrong. And then the day after the election, the clean team would come in there, you know, with like the guys with the white suits and they'd come in and fumigate everything. And they would, you know, burn Steve Bannon's body and salt the floor. Right. They would do, you know, they would clean go on. Stuff out. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think, I think that was, you know, that was really the scenario people had constructed to create, you know, there was a lot of that, you're of, right. Certainty out of uncertainty, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's certainly true of politicians, right? That politicians suddenly woke up the day after the election and they were like, wow, this is a different scenario than I thought we were going to be in, right? I think they, a lot of them thought they were going to come in and say, oh, yeah, we're going to need to have a new autopsy like they had after 2012. And we would announce that we would have to do X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, the never Trumpers would have been the ones who were like hailed as the heroes because they had they had said that the del deluge was coming. And so a lot of I think what's happening after that, the things you were seeing, right, mm -hmm. were a result of, the, of people's, you know, the way that people had resolved their uncertainty into, into certainty suddenly getting switched around right, and people having to sort of, you know, switch around on the fly. And that all obviously is, is happening in the context of this intense polarization where everything is viewed as being zero sum, right? Mm -hmm. 
And as you were talking about there about the end of the book, um, and we, you know, we had to figure out how to solve the end of the book problem. Uh, and the way we solve the end of the book problem is not just to go back to the interviews and tell you what we've already heard, but to sort of imagine how things might be different, right? And we do think in the book, right, it's this polarization that plays a really important role in how everybody reacted in the way that they did in the book, right? Because there's only really two choices, right? And by two choices, I mean, both of the parties are relatively homogenous. And that's what's really unusual in the history of American party politics, right? Is we're used to parties, right? Because we, we have a two party system, right? Unlike in European systems where you can have a center party, you can have a far left party, you can have far right, you have all this, right? Everything in the United States has to all happen inside of these two parties, right? And as a consequence, in American history, for the most part, our parties have been coalitions of factions, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to go back in the history, right? The Republican Party had a progressive faction and a stalwart faction. Later on, it has a moderate faction or a liberal or Rockefeller Republican faction and a conservative faction. Democrats have Southern Democrats and liberal Northern Democrats. That, you know, and those were organized groups, right, who could sort of, you know, who formally would negotiate with one another, right? So they had something of a common interest, right? Because they did want to beat the other party, but they also wanted to win in that internecine party factional conflict, right? And the thing that's really unusual, certainly in the Republican Party, right, over the last 20 to 30 years, is the kind of collapse of factional politics, right? The degree to which the Republican Party had became more of a united um, conservative party without any kind of organized faction, right? And the only organized faction you really have is a sort of maximalist faction that agrees with what the mainstream faction wants, but wants more of it, right? You think of the Freedom Caucus in that way. And so we say that one thing we might see going forward is um, a return back to factional parties, right? Mm -hmm. And so especially if Trump loses in, in 2020, one thing that can happen is the forces that were around Never Trump and a lot of the social groups out there in society um, that are sort of alien to the more populist elements of Trumpism could form a kind of minority faction in the Republican Party that would, you know, would be competitive where that Republican Party is not. You already see that, you know, the, the fact that Republicans elect governors in Massachusetts and Maryland who are highly popular, right? It's not hard to imagine that that's where that, what we call the liberal conservative faction, the Jonah Goldberg faction, right? Um, the Raihan Salam faction, right? Mm -hmm. um, would, would be there, right? And they would provide the intellectuals and the professionals for that, faction and that faction would in would be pivotal because it wouldn't be possible at least on the, the republican side for the republicans to control congress without you know at least having some negotiation with that organized liberal conservative faction so i do think you know there's no pathway back from a more or less populist republican party right but it'll be a republican party that has to share power rather than having a kind of dictatorial, homogenous sort of power of the way it does now. And you can see similar trends in the Democratic Party, right? The Democrats are, are already building this Ocasio-Cortez DSA 
left faction, right? And that, you know, you can, you know, you saw at the beginnings, right, around people congealing around Biden, of people trying to create a dominant sort of moderate faction. Now, again, I think this is going to be a little different. I think that the left faction and the Democratic Party is going to be the minority but pivotal faction, right, at least in national politics, whereas the liberal conservatives are going to be the minority faction in the Republican Party. But that creates a very different politics, right? One thing we know from a lot of the history of political parties is where the parties are factionally divided, one thing that you end up getting is you get much weaker central control in Congress, right? Because those parties often want to make deals with the other party, right? The liberal conservative faction wants to make a deal with the, um, the moderate faction on the Democratic side around trade or immigration or something like, um, like that. And that really could, could end up um, reshaping a lot of polarization we see. But the basic point is that's where I see the pathway to relevance for the people who are more or less irrelevant or men without a country as a result of the never Trump phenomenon, is they're going to come back in through a more factionalized politics. It's a lot to chew on there. Um, doesn't, I mean, don't you need, and we will just put a pin on describing me as part of the liberal conservative faction for discussion another day. Um, uh, the, the, don't you need some sort of, cataclysmic catalyzing event to shake up the polarization of both parties to the extent that you're talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think, you know, you know, COVID-19 is already to some degree doing yeah. that. Right. Um, in ways good and bad. Right. I think one thing you're, you know, again, you're one of the things that I find interesting is um, you could end up with very weirdly different ideological character of American politics coming out of this, right? On the one hand, you know, COVID-19 has been hugely centralizing and we're seeing lots of redistribution, right? And at the other time, we're seeing all this like removal of occupational licensing, right? I know you had Senator Shoshana on um, and I wrote a book called The Captured Economy that had a whole chapter on occupational licensing, so I'm all down with that. Um, but we're already seeing, right, a lot of that sort of on the fly, getting torn up. And I think there's going to be a lot of path dependence there. Right. And so part of, I think what's going on is um, people's sense of knowing what the options are, what the, what the ideological alternatives are is up for grabs. And I think that's more of a prescription for factionalization, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That when people aren't quite sure about who that is, they want to make coalitions with on any particular issue, they're going to be much less willing to transfer authority over to leaders, right? That's, we know there's a whole school in, in, in political science around Congress called conditional party government theory that says the condition of party government is homogeneity, right? When mm -hmm. people, you know, have a homogenous party, they're willing to transfer authority over to their leaders because they think their leaders would want more or less what they would want. That's like agency theory or principal agent theory, right? But where they don't have that certainty, where they don't have the certainty that their leaders would um, want to have what they want, right? Then they're going to want to have the ability to make coalitions with whoever they, uh, they can. And I think, so the COVID-19, the way that's shaping up, and then you already were seeing some of this, right? Um, it's factional that you saw that inside the Democratic Party, right? Is it's becoming more clearly factionalized. Um, and I think, you know, that, you know, a loss in 2020 
by Trump, especially if it was a big loss, right, would um, allow for a lot more open um, factional warfare in the Republican Party. Now, some of this, again, I think it's important, and I know you spend a lot of time um, crapping on social science, which is perfectly fair. Um, and, I, and, I, and we are really careful at the end to actually make a kind of social, a, a logic of social science point, which is we're not making predictions, right? We're describing scenarios, sure, right? Probability. But the point of describing scenarios is there's a role for agency, right? A lot of matters in what people do, right? People make calculations. People make conscious choices, right? Philanthropists, right, put their money into this or that, right? And I do think, actually, one of the the real errors of the last four years, right, is that um, especially the Republicans who opposed Trump, you know, I think partially because they thought the whole thing was like a fluke and it might go away, haven't really built the kind of durable organizational structures for factional conflict that they should have been, right? They've lost years, right, where they could have been creating something like, you know, what the Democrats did in the 80s, right, with the DLC and the Progressive Policy Institute and all of that, and, you know, states, you know, all of those things are things they could have done. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they would have been ready and armed for 2021, right, Um, and for the you know, and I think now part of this is there are there's certain kind of pathologies to the center, right, um, that uh, those kinds of people tend to look for institutional solutions to their problems, right? They're like, oh, we need to have, you know, right choice voting, right? That whole thing, this whole thing of polarization, it's all just because we have some fluke of having the wrong institutions. We fix those things, then everything will be fine, right? Um, instead of really having a robustly political theory of how you get change, which is, you know, ultimately politics serves who shows up, right? Mm -hmm. There's no substitute for showing up, right? And, um, you know, right now in the Republican Party, the people who are showing up are the people who support Trump, right? And the people who I associate with what I would call the liberal conservative faction, the Republican Party, haven't spent the last three or four years actually going out and creating durable structures for collective action, right? Creating networks of people, right, who are in states where Republicans conceivably could win with organizations, right? All that stuff has been lost. Um, yeah, no, that, that's a very good point. And it reminds me- That's you, why I made it. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I used to work, when I first came to Washington as a larval policy gnome at AI, um, I worked for Ben Wattenberg, who- was part of the Coalition for Democratic Majority, which is the precursor of the DLC. And um, one of the downsides of working for Ben was thinking that the DLC was vastly more fascinating than it probably actually was because I just, I had to like talk myself into being interested in it. But um, uh, the, you have a, you have a discussion in the book about the sort of the legal community, uh, which sort of bolsters this point, right? Is that one of the reasons why, and this is a point I keep harping on to the frustration of a lot of people is that Trump felt a lot of the best things that Trump has done from a conservative perspective are the judicial appointments. And the reason why he did the judicial appointments the way he did is because he agreed to defer 
to the legal professionals, specifically basically the Federalist Society and, and the Heritage Foundation. And the reason he did that is because those guys actually had institutional clout within the party, within the movement, in ways that other factions, for want of a better word, don't. And, um, and my friend and colleague Adam White made the point that also there's something about being a lawyer that, that lets your conscience be clear about making nakedly transactional arrangements with bad people. And, um, and it seems, right, I, that's I mean, a I think you make, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. You know, um, you know, and if it, if it leads to you not being able to see your reflection in a mirror, you know, so be it small price to pay. Um, but the, um, uh, this, this point about not building, you know, up the institutional parts of conservatism, you know, to fight back, we at the dispatch are explicitly not a, we don't want we be a party organ. Uh, you know, one of the points that we've talked about a bunch is about how, you know, a lot of the conservative media is basically um, doing party work by proxy. And um, we don't want to do that. Um, or do we, we don't want to, we don't want to make those kinds of calculations and how we do stuff. Um, in, at least in the news coverage. Um, but, but that, I mean, that said, sorry, just to interrupt, but you know, as they say, uh, you may not be interested in the dialectic, but the dialectic is interested in you. <laughs> no, um, I know. I know. You know, the, you know, one feature of this, right, is that um, some institute, you know, it's, you know, in, in our understanding of party, right, party is a continuous rather than a binary variable. By, uh, so, you know, institutions have more or less partisanship, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not unreasonable to think about the university, right, in most universities as in some soft sense part of the extended Democratic Party. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, sure. You know, and again, some parts of it are more and some parts of it are less, but they do perform very important services that really filter through the Democratic Party and don't in the Republican Party, right? And some of the same things are true for media, right? And I do think that and one think thing tanks that, like AI, you know, I mean, there are lots of places that right. have, um, perform some party function, even if they don't see themselves as doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why I think thinking about these things behaviorally rather than formally is actually useful in thinking about partisanship, right? And so, you know, again, a lot and a, a lot of the the things that um, are people who who consciously don't think about themselves as performing a party function, right? Um, it's easier to imagine doing that if you're doing that for a party faction rather than the party as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think that's one of the reasons that party factions are so valuable, right? Is they allow people to differentiate from an often polluted overall, and that's what the DLC did, right, back mm. in the day, right, is that people could run and say, oh, you're not voting for Walter Mondale, you're not voting for Bella Abzug, right, you're voting for me, and I'm a DLC Democrat, and that's a different thing, right, right? that branding is valuable, especially when the party brand is polluted in the way that it is in New York and California, and and I do think, you know, as the Democratic Party goes to the left in those places, right, that obviously opens up space for a liberal conservative faction if they can differentiate themselves from the overall Republican brand, right? But they mm -hmm. have to be able to do that. And that's where actual organization, it's hard for an individual just to do that 
all by themselves, right? They need institutions and ideas and branding that's recognized by ordinary citizens, and they need actual organization on the ground if it's not just going to be a kind of personalistic thing in the way that it is for somebody like, um, uh, you know, in Massachusetts or Maryland. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean, I, would I cry a river if all of a sudden a bunch of politicians that I liked said, look, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Breitbart conservative, I'm a dispatch conservative? I guess I would, you know, but uh, that's not how I wake up in the day with right. that goal in mind, right? Right, but, but again, I think this is the important point, right, is if you think about, and again, in the book, we, we talk about these never-Trump categories as professional categories, right? There's a whole big discussion of national security conservatives, right? And it's really important to understand that their behavior was a function of their professional identity and networks, right? So we got access to the email chain where they were like on the original letter that national security conservatives sent out opposing Trump, right? And this turned out to be fascinating because you got to actually see how this community converses with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they really did, you know, have a sense of, of unit cohesion, you know, like they talk about in the military, right? They thought of themselves as a group, right? And they thought, you know, they talked about people who weren't on it as traitors, right? Or quizzling, you know, they use words like that, right? Um, and, you know, that, and so the important point is all these groups combine partisanship and professionalism, right? Mm -hmm. And so to go back to the, not that, you know, go back into the uh, psychoanalysis of Jonah Goldberg, but which is what people say right before they do something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something like, like the dispatch is going to combine elements of both, right? That is, there's a commitment to a certain kind of professionalism, right? About what's good journalism, what's good reporting, what's good news, right? And we don't want that polluted by partisanship, right? And yet, given the nature of conservative media, doing that is itself partisan, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is, it's counter to the kind of media that of a particular faction, right? If you think about Fox News as essentially the official party organ, right, of the dominant faction of the Republican Party, doing something different is both professional and partisan, right? Or at least counterpartisan, which is itself partisan. Yeah, I mean, there's a... There's there's a vague whiff of Carl Schmidt and all of this that uh, wow. <laughs> to, to, to choose is it to choose not to choose is a choice in and of itself something or but I, I, I hear where you're coming from and I think it's a perfectly valid point um, uh, I could do this again because there's a lot of stuff more to cover but we're heading into a hard out here and um, I have to move on I, I've decided that that you know, when my grandkids ask me, what did you do during the pandemic? I'm going to tell them all I did was podcast. <laughs> it's all I'm doing these days. Yeah, or, or, or you're, you used to do the glop one and say, basically, I spent a lot of time talking about, uh, about the Three Stooges or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got to get it. I'm overdue getting back to them about another glop, too. Um, so, Steve Tellers, thank you so much for doing this. And um, we're going to have you back on. Um, uh, the book... Again, I don't have it in front of me because everything is digital. Um, the, book, the book is available on Amazon now. You can get it for your Kindle. And then uh, when we are allowed to emerge from our bunkers and blink into the sunlight, uh, you can go and um, if the looted bookstores um, still have anything around, you can get your copy of Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites. 
Um, Steve, thank you so much for coming on and uh, hope to see you again. Thanks for having me on, Jonah. Okay, so Steve has uh, left the uh, conversation and um, I thought, it, you know, this is a really weird one for me. Um, I get a lot of feedback from people saying, don't talk about Trump anymore. I get a lot of feedback from other people saying, talk about Trump a lot. And I never know where, quite where to find the right balance. Um, I do think that people who often comment on places like iTunes um, or on Twitter about this, about how every show is just an anti-Trump rant, are, um, to borrow a technical term, liars. Um, and it's one of these things that you can always tell whether someone is acting in good faith um, by how they actually describe something I have some knowledge about, like my motives or the content of the podcast that I'm hosting. Um, but I certainly understand why some people think I, you know, I beat up on Trump too much. I also understand, sorry, folks, why some people think I beat up on Trump too little. Um, but I think what Steve, Steve and his co-author have done here is like a really important and interesting service. And obviously, it's kind of fascinating to me because it's about the world that I live in and the people that I know and how people came to some decisions that were very painful for them or very painful for me. Um, and so people who are really into this, into this stuff, um, they should check it out for sure. Um, so far, the feedback on the, the Friday audio G file, whatever we're going to call it, has been really positive and I really appreciate it. I know I got a little um, choked up on the last one, which kind of took me by surprise. Um, and the reason why I'm not going to dwell too much longer on today's episode is that I think I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about some of this stuff there. Uh, but thank you for the feedback. We're going to, for the foreseeable future, we're going to try and keep it a regular thing um, and maybe get a little more creative with it if we have the time and the bandwidth to do it. Um, but, you know, for the time being, you, sh you should expect Jonah's Week in Review um, to come out, you know, I guess Saturday mornings is when it drops. So with that, uh, thanks everybody for listening. I'm sorry if I sound exhausted. We, um, between the time I recorded this, um, all sorts of crazy things happened, which I can tell you about later. And I'm kind of burnt out and I still have to write the Wednesday G file. So, uh, have a great Passover for those of you who, um, are of the tribe and have a wonderful Easter for those of you who are of that tribe, and I don't, I guess it's not the right word, but you know what I'm talking about. And uh, everybody stay safe, and um, we'll all get through this uh, as best we can. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.